Hello and welcome back to our podcast as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews. Uh, really glad you've decided to spend this time with us and very glad to have uh, Lachlan and Luke here too. My name's Cameron. My name's Luke. And I'm Lachlan. Great. Now, uh, we're up to Hebrews 7. Now, a lot of these themes have been preempted in the earlier chapters. We've, we've started with Christ being uh, shown to be better than the angels, uh, better than Moses, better than the priestly tradition, which is which is extended in this chapter with a bit of a punchline at the end where we discover that Christ is the better sacrifice. Hmm. So we're, we're gradually sort of ticking off the, the features of, of the uh, Jewish religious tradition, each in their turn being compared to Christ. Um, the, I find this chapter uh, a little opaque, but um, I'm sure we'll have a lot to say. Uh, Locke, do you want to kick us off and read the first couple of verses? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll read it from the New Living Translation and, and see if that flows nicely. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests, who are descendants of Levi, must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. All right, well, that, that's up to verse 7, but I have to stop there. Do we, do we agree that this final statement is without question? The person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed? I don't know. There's places in the Psalms where the psalmist blesses God. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think we do in some of our congregational songs. Well. Yeah, but maybe we don't have the power to actually give the blessing. Yes, the the implication oh, yeah. here is that the, the blessing from Melchizedek was, 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 uh, had, had actual power to change circumstances and events. Mm. It was, it was you know, magic, essentially. Maybe maybe what, uh, yeah, I think you're right, Luke, and maybe p- part of it is that Abraham looked to Melchizedek for blessing. Ah, mm. yeah. So maybe maybe what they're saying is Abraham recognised in Melchizedek someone mm. someone uh, greater than himself in some way that he wanted to aspire towards or to recognise. Um, and so maybe... maybe what they're saying is all all the players in this particular story would agree. You know, Abraham would have agreed that Melchizedek was was greater in this mm. sense. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. There's a number of other things that I find at least deserve a little bit of question. Um, it seems... I actually kind of like what Hebrews does here in chapter 7, and, and we've paused partway through it, but it's you can feel the way it's developing this argument that... that the priestly system or the idea of priest 
um, is is has to be bigger, even within the Jewish tradition, it has to be bigger than just the Levitical priesthood post-Exodus. And the author is pointing back to Melchizedek, who's described as a priest, and is pointing out that you know, can't have even been a descendant of Abraham. And so there's there's some different stuff happening here. But still, is it fair to take a relatively minor character from an important story and say, ah, well, there's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors. Therefore, there's he remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. I, to be honest, I, I, don't, I don't know what they're trying to prove in that verse. I, I mean, I... It feels so. Maybe if you think of this as a sermon, well, it it feels like it could have. It's a sort of a a rhetorical flourish in my mind. It, you you feel it and you think, oh, that's that's a cute detail, but it doesn't hold well, up to much scrutiny. That's my point personal may, feeling. May have been that the Israelites certainly valued their genealogy and their lineages and their descendants, and the point may have been made that you don't need any of those things to be. Hmm you know, a great priest, you know. Is it a bit of a a, a New Testament retcon of, Mel, you know, that retroactively sort of changing Melchizedek's nature or, or, or rhetorically exaggerating it to make a point that, yeah. you know, your, your, your Hebrewness is not the most important thing when it comes to being right with God. Hmm. Yeah. This is this is a theme that sort of turned up a lot, like your question that you've asked, and I mean I'm not so comfortable necessarily. If you if you were trying to say, oh, it's obvious that Melchizedek, the story in its original inception, is there to describe a type of Christ. Um, hmm. That is what the original passage means, and any person reading that passage should be able to look at it and say, ah, oh, obviously messianic. This one. Because I, I don't think it is obviously messianic. So, you know, if you were trying to claim that... Um, if you were trying to convince someone, uh, if it was an apologetic work, you were trying to convince them of the truth of Christ's divinity and significance in in the universe, hmm. then I'm not sure it would work. But if you're talking to people who all agree on this Jewish tradition thing, that's a common ground... And then they're having second thoughts about Christ, but you're trying to find an idiom or an expression that you can use that will explain things perfectly. Mm. Then this is a story they're all going to know. Um, yep. And so we do this. We do this as soon, if we say, um, as an example, um, we say someone is narcissistic. Um, they're a narcissist. Well, that's a direct reference to a Greek legend, isn't it? There was, hmm. there was a narcissus. Narcissus. Narcissus, who fell in love with his own reflection and, and starved to death because he couldn't even leave it Do, to get doesn't food. Doesn't he have a hut down in Tassie somewhere? <laughs> yeah, he do, there is a hut named after, after <laughs> Narcissus. But yeah, Narcissus, so that's a story about a, a, mm. someone who thought that they were so wonderful and good-looking that they couldn't leave their own reflection and, and it ended up hurting them. Oh, well, yeah. they, they, they starved to death. Are you trying to, death, to tell me, Cam, that the original tellers of that were not... Consciously giving a warning against Instagram, I, I'm saying that they were not conscious of Instagram, but but it fits really well. So yeah, so that's exactly it. So so uh, what what they're saying is, I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is, I got this idea. Um, I'm trying to explain Christ's excellence mm. in its many facets. I need something to explain it. Um, uh, I'm trying to explain. He's trying to explain that there's something different about Christ 
that Christ is the not altogether different, the fulfillment of. Christ is, is mm. like the the flower and the Jewish tradition is the seed. There's a connection between the two, but there's a fairly dramatic difference. And so um, I think that's why they picked on the story of Melchizedek, because of him not belonging to the Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. I think that in this, um, there's actually other Old Testament stories you could also point to. Uh, and in previous episodes of this podcast, we have identified some instances of the the Bible itself containing some evidence, some hint of the way that God is is very obviously at work, even amongst peoples who are not the focus of the story. Way back, Jacob and Esau, we in the Bible text, we follow the story of Jacob. But when we reconnect with Esau, we find that God has indeed blessed him in the way that he always intended to. And um, the, the God's blessing is bigger and greater and beyond just the Jacob part of the story, even as our narrative that is preserved for us does focus in on certain aspects of it. I, I, I get the same feeling very strongly with Melchizedek, and I think what is happening here in Hebrews 7 is a a, a great argument to kind of say, Reality has to be bigger than some of the boxes you've grown up thinking of it through, um, some of the lenses you've grown up thinking of it through. And for the Jewish audience, that's going to be the priesthood system. And even in their own tradition, there's evidence of someone being called a priest who wasn't part of the of the Jewish Hebrew nation's priestly system. So, yeah. so that 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 is a strong argument, in my opinion. It's a it's a clever way to sort of just encourage people in. Invite them to think a little bigger. Yeah, that's good luck. Um, I'm in the interest of, of getting through this in a timely fashion. I might pick up from verse eight, and we'll read the next couple of verses. I, I have I have a thought on what you just said, Locke, uh, but maybe we will come back to it. Okay. Uh, in the one case, the tithe is collected by people who'll die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. Now, that's a reference to Melchizedek, is declared to be living, is he? Yeah, because there's a sort of a... There's no record of his death. There's no record of his death, so he can thus be declared to be living. Uh, One might even say that Levi, who collects the tithe, uh, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Holy dooly. Um, (laughs) <laughs> I, well, it's it's a weird. It, I I want to stop on this one for just a sec because it's a weird phrasing, but I've been reading it over and over, and we're talking, and I think the concept is making is quite profound. He's saying even the Levites, because the Levites had not yet been descended from Abraham, they would be, they came later. Mm. Even the Levites essentially paid tribute to Melchizedek because Abraham, who was their mm. ancestor, did. Yeah, that's yeah. the point that yeah. he's making there. Yes, um, which I think is a yeah. It emphasises what you're saying. Um, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, uh, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. 
for it's declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. So uh, I guess one of the things that I'm not anticipated, I hadn't thought of, but uh, in a way the author is saying, hey, in the last chapter I said Jesus was a priest, but you're going to get all upset that he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. So I just need to establish that there's a legitimate concept of priesthood apart from the Levitical tradition. Maybe that's another reason why he's drawn on He's not only establishing that, as we just saw in verses um, 8-9. He's establishing that that concept of priesthood is greater than the concept of the Levitical priesthood. Yeah. Has supremacy over primacy. And, and, And Jesus is of that priesthood, not the lesser Levitical priesthood. So he's not just saying it's okay to have a priest who wasn't from the Levites. He's saying... This priest who's not from the Levites is of a priesthood that is greater than your priest, the, you know, the best priesthood you've mm. got. This one's better. Mm. Mm. It's interesting, that verse, uh, so in verse 17 there, just where you stopped, basically, Cam, um, Hebrews here quotes from the Psalms. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the evidence of it in the Psalms, I had forgotten, although I now recall I think we may have even encountered that, um, perhaps even back in our very first season of this podcast, looking at some of the Psalms. Um, Melchizedek is obviously featured more prominently than just simply the the passage in Genesis where the account is given of his interaction with Abraham. So there's there's a sense here in which he's not such a minor character of the Old Testament, but already something, some idea and a concept that's actually embedded slightly more powerfully and slightly more abstractly into the, the cultural history. Hmm. Uh, verse 20, And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. That's reference to that passage you read, Lot. Um, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Uh, now, there have been many of the, those priests since death prevented them from continuing, continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. (sighs) Another reference to being made perfect. Mm. Yes, well, I don't know that I have the credentials to unpack that particular topic. <laughs> I understand the church has fought wars over it at various points. Um, so yeah. the, the question, the thought that I had, uh, it yes. would maybe is an interesting question to go on from here and an interesting question for listeners at home to ponder, is if the writer of Hebrews was writing to us today what sort of message would they be giving us in line with the message in this verse to the Hebrews with regard mm. to their priesthood? I've, I've phrased that very poorly, I suspect. Yeah, well, we don't have a priesthood as an idea. In fact, we're very proud not to. Uh, do um, we not, though? We, 
No, no. Well, this is well. It's Protestant as as uh, Adventist from Methodist from Protestant Christians. We we don't hold with this. So this what? Pope-ish. What? What is a priesthood? Um, it's people set apart. So one of the Levitical system, at least, you know, they there were various. There were various. They were set apart in in number of ways. Um, was it was it true that they couldn't hold? They couldn't own property. That's one I, of the things, and so that's why there's that's special... That's why they get the, the 10... The 10% had a practical... Yeah. It was to support yeah, the yeah, priesthood, yeah. because the priesthood couldn't... were not allowed yeah. to have material wealth, essentially, which is a reasonably mm. common uh, concept across yeah. uh, various, you know, religious and political authorities. Um, mm. You know, Plato, for example, had the idea that kings, kings should be uh, forbidden from having any sort of wealth or, hmm. you know as, as a check on power essentially but the priesthood was a system of administration essentially they ran yes, well, it was that for their church wasn't it they ran the church the hebrew the, the israelite religion mm-hmm. um they ran it they organized it they were in control of it they were in charge of it now you say it like that look when someone stands up and says this particular musical instrument shall not be used in church or that particular expression won't find its place in our church or this you know and we will make this decision it will be imposed on everyone else they are they are claiming the power to moderate how people approach god they def- so they're not it's not like it's not like a priest in the jewish or the or the medieval roman catholic tradition idea against which some of the protestant believers rebelled that that we couldn't have direct access to God, so we had to go through a human being. But as a church, we have at times said, oh, no, you can't have access to God except through these uh, legitimate expressions. Exactly. Mm. And that is the role of a priesthood, is to define those rules, right? Because, I mean, it's talking there in Hebrews about the law. The priesthood was all about the law. The priests were the one who told everybody else what the law to follow was. Mm. And and how you did your religion properly, um, mm. I I'm reminded when I read you know we've we've talked about this before sort of the the multiple meanings that a Bible can have that that, that a scripture can have you know if if it's divinely mm. inspired it doesn't necessarily mean it has one meaning it can mean something to the original audience something to the the people three generations after something else to them after that something else to us now so you know looking at what's the message in it for us now mm. if the purpose of scripture is to guide us and to teach us what is what is good um as you know micah 6 8 says um mm. then when we read it we need to be looking at well, what are the weaknesses what are the dangers in our current circumstance like, obviously we we don't have we have the 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 eternal high priest right so maybe that part of it doesn't necessarily apply to us so much but you know reading these earlier verses about the sort of priesthood and i'm thinking about organized religion and you know sda is protestant certainly it uh, it is part of the tradition that revolted against many of the you know problems that people felt there existed with catholicism um but we certainly like our administration and our very hierarchical structured system of organizing and running the church um and you know when you were talking about that idea of sort of 
moderating access to God come. It, it reminded me mm. of a thought I've had about baptism for a while now, which is, it, it, it would certainly vary across different individuals and different circumstances. I don't want to paint anyone with a broad brush here, but mm. there is a sort of conception that I, an understanding that I definitely grew up with, that you were baptized into the Adventist church, right? Mm. Your baptism was and this, I mean, this, this was not a misunderstanding. This is what happened with us when we were baptized. Mm. We joined the church membership and you, you signed oh. a, a declaration of, of uh, accepting and believing uh, the, the fundamentals. Uh, there were fewer of them in those days. So thinking about that now, who are we? Ba- baptism is salvation. Mm. It's an acceptance of salvation through Christ. It is the same thing that was offered to the thief on the cross who did nothing more than say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Who are we mm. to put our rules in front of, of, of somebody before they can have salvation, before they can be baptized? Well, as you're saying that, Luke, it, it's making me think of something really, really clear. In a, in a sense, part of the message Part of the logic that is being argued here in Hebrews 7 is this thing that is important to you, this God-following activity, is demonstrably, even within your own tradition, is demonstrably bigger than and beyond just your own tradition. Um, Your tradition is the descendants of Abraham, and specifically they're the Israelites, they're the children of Israel, so actually that's Abraham's grandson, one of Abraham's grandsons. So it's a pretty specific subset of the descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek isn't. And the, the analogy that would would be spoken in the context you're describing, Luke, is to an Adventist who is um, who finds value in and is embedded in the Adventist Protestant Christian tradition, it can be really helpful to just rem- remind ourselves God is bigger than Adventism. Even the, even the discipline of following God in the way of Jesus is demonstrably bigger than the Adventist movement. It's pretty easy to find the equivalent of a Melchizedek, a, a, a priest respected by but external to and in some ways prior to the Advent movement. Um, and and so it's probably quite helpful to remind, no matter what faith tradition we're part of, I think part of what Hebrews 7 is doing here can be taken to be reminding us that it is indeed bigger than this, bigger than us. We shouldn't be frightened to find valuable voices beyond the Adventist circle because because God is beyond the Adventist circle. There are Melchizedeks all over the place. Mm. And we can even sometimes um, go to them for a blessing. Yeah. I, I, the passage I was thinking of, Locke, was the one in Joshua where he approaches the stranger who's camped by the Jordan. He says, mm. are you with us or are you with our enemies? And the stranger says, no, you've got the question <laughs> wrong. It's not yeah. a question of whether I'm with you. It's a question of whether you're with me. Yes, I like that. Yeah, I like that story. C.S. Lewis liked it too, I remember. <laughs> mm. There's an element of this where um, the author of Hebrews is saying, so you, 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 we all agree on our Jewish tradition. That seems to be common ground. And you're just wondering whether Christ um, is worth addition. 
adding in? Is, is it worth, you know, adopting this new insight? Is, is it worth sticking through it? Through persecution and trial and trouble, does Christ bring anything substantially new? And he flips the question around. He says, no, that's, that's not the right question. The question is, does your tradition mean anything without Christ? Mm. So you have all these priests, but the priests are people and they have to sacrifice for their own sins and they all end up dead, just like everyone else. Um, and... Uh, if this is not pointing to something bigger, what is it? It's a good question. Or more, or more, or more correctly, what what use is it? Um, uh, and in that light, I think the author, author of Hebrews is saying, uh, if you decide to throw out Christ, can you legitimately keep your tradition? Huh? Can you can you yeah. go back to go back to the priesthood if you've if you've if you've encountered the real priest? If you were if you were there next to Abraham and said, "Oh no, I'm not going to sacrifice." I'm not going to give tithe to Melchizedek because he's not he's not a one of us and he's not what I'm familiar with. The author of mm. Hebrews is saying you'd be in error. Abraham showed Abraham, this person you look up to, cheerfully and willingly gave to Melchizedek. Mm. I'd like to focus in a little bit just just on that that thought you preempted at the very start, Cam. This all this talk of priesthood actually gets a little bit complicated right at the end when it switches to being not just that Jesus is the better priest, but that he's actually offered himself as the better sacrifice. It's better because it doesn't need to be done every day. Um, and and Jesus, but Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. That's complicating it even further because the priests were involved in the sacrificial system, but they weren't the sacrifice. No, which which goes to show that that he that they're not attempting exit. Jesus, or they're not trying to, um, they're not in fact trying to say that Jesus was a priest. They're they're using priesthood as a metaphor for Christ. Mm. So the existing mm. ideas, wherever, and so this is what the value of a metaphor is: um, is you say something is something which it's not, so that you can actually the the point is to explain more clearly clearly what it actually is. Yeah. So you say now Jesus is a priest, right? He's a priest. Oh, now, now Jesus is the sacrifice, and there's other places where this is done. There's there's a passage that is quoted quite often by um, by people who feel it very important to establish that God is not that we are friends with God, and uh, if they mean as opposed to being enemies with God, that God is anxious to be negotiate with us on friendly terms. I'm in full agreement, but if they mean he's like my mate. Mm. Um, I'm not so certain. And there's a verse that they quote where Christ says to his disciples, you know, you're not servants because servants don't know what their masters are doing, but I'm telling you what I'm doing because you're friends. Mm. You're my mm. friends, right? And then and that, this is the verse that's quoted to defend the idea that, that God's one of our friends. Um, of course, a few verses later, within the same chapter of John, Christ says, don't expect to be treated well. If a master is not treated well, the servants aren't going to get treated any better. Yeah, and what what Christ is saying is there are some ways in which you are like a friend, mm. and there are some ways in which you are like a servant. Yeah, there are some ways where you are like a son. There are some ways in which you are like a bride waiting for the groom. There are some ways in which you are like a s- slave entrusted with money waiting for the servant master come home. Um, you know, these are all useful things, mm. and um, that's the power of metaphor. And I, and I am starting to become a bit more reconciled with the style of Hebrews. 
where mm. it seems to jump jump from this sort of extravagant claim to extravagant claim to extravagant claim using these Old Testament verses and characters that in the original context don't seem necessarily to point to a messianic figure. But but I think viewed in that light where he's saying, no, Christ is Christ is a priest. Think of this story. Think of this story. Think of this. Ah, no, no Christ is a sacrifice. Hmm. Um, Christ is the new Moses. Um, then then he's sort of like, it's a sort of a scattershot, trying to view it from lots of perspectives. Well, yeah. I think maybe what, what, what he's, what's going on is that the author has to convey some very complex, somewhat contradictory concepts, you know, and mm. I, I forget who said it and I forget the exact quote. Um, so I'm clearly not very educated. This but... is, this is really upping the stakes for our listener bingo cards. <laughs> but, but it's something along the lines of the mark of an educated mind is to be able to hold two contradictory ideas at once. Because reality is mm-hmm. complex, yeah. and things that contradict each other can coexist in ways. Like, mm. grasping a very cons- complicated concept is difficult, and communicating it is even harder. And I think the author of Hebrews seems, you know, they're using a variety of metaphors and images to try and yeah. show you different facets of the same very complicated concept that is yeah. Christ, the, the Saviour. You know, yeah. and yeah. It, it, you know, it makes me wonder. Um, and it, you know, you also reminded me of it, Ken, when you said that thing about people, you know, say Christ is their friend and then they reduce him to, you know, their mate, you know, um, and uh, to which C.S. Lewis would say he's not a tame lion, you know. Mm. It's, mm. it's, I wonder if we do God a disservice when we try and make him really simple and easy to understand that the whole point is that well, the creator of the universe yeah. must by definition be incredibly complex and hard for us to understand there's a paradox about this luke you know it was simple enough as your allusion to the thief on the cross he could see enough to capture the essence um and in one sense that we have a beautifully simple story god loves us and is doing all that he can to reconcile us to him uh, but then, he it's it is complicated. Also, it's very complicated. Well, I think just to be clear, I, salvation may be simple, although simple is not the same as easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right? a good But when you're talking about the character of Christ and the nature of Christ, hmm. then it's like um, it's a different topic. It's, it's like it's like the Trinity. Who who was it that said uh, uh, the Trinity is very hard to understand, especially if understood correctly. <laughs> I know I've heard that somewhere. Oh well, well, most things are easy to understand if you're willing to understand them incorrectly. Yes. <laughs> As we're um, coming to the end of this chapter, we're moving towards some fu- some chapters in the near future that really start to lean into this priest sacrifice priestly system, and it's it's places where um, you know at times uh, our Adventist tradition has gotten very very obsessed with seeing in in rather fine detail elements of the old testament sanctuary system being applied to jesus and before we get there which is definitely not happening in this episode we have to wait for it but i'd like to take the opportunity to make an observation that i think i've made before here in chapter seven jesus is presented as a priest as a high priest and as a sacrifice and 
the it seems to me that one valid Christ-centric way to approach the sanctuary, the whole structure and ritual and and a symbolism of the sanctuary in the Old Testament times is actually a little bit like what you just described. It's the metaphor. Is Jesus the friend? Yes. Is Jesus the brother? Yes. Is Jesus the servant? Yes. Um, you know, yeah. here in this case, yes. in the context of the sanctuary, is is Jesus the priest? Yeah. Is he the high priest? Yes. Is he the sacrifice? Yes. Is he the candlestick? Yes. Is he the bread on the table? Yes. In some sense, even, is Jesus the the sanctuary itself? And in some sense, yes, you know, we're told in the Gospels that the sanctuary has a fairly important curtain ripped. It's, it's if, it, if you like, it's ripped in its side, overlapping with, not exactly chronological with, but pretty much overlapping with Jesus himself having a spear ripped the side of his own body after his death yeah. on the cross. And opening and up access a, to the most holy place. Yeah. yeah. And so what is that access to the most holy place? What, you know, the whole, I think there is some sense at least before getting into too much nuance in which it is in fact valid to just say, Jesus is everything. Is he the scapegoat that carries the sins of the people away from the camp? Yes. Is he the, the sacrifice that gets killed and burnt on the altar? Yes. Well, and, you, you know, you it, could... it seems to me that is at least a, a valid, according to the book of Hebrews we've read so far, way yeah. of engaging as a Christian with meaning. You can say it that way around, but I think it's even clear if you say it the other way around. You can say, yes, Jesus is all of these things. You can also say all of these things are metaphors for elements of Jesus. Mm. Mm. The, the part of the Adventist tradition that I'm less comfortable is the part where we say, because the sanctuary, for instance, is a valid metaphor for Christ, all aspects of the sanctuary, not just their meaning or their symbolism, their geometry and their you know down to very fine details, mm. must still somehow exist in some very tangible, exact, representative way. That's not to me how rep how, how metaphors it's, work. It's interesting, mm. isn't it? How um, very scientific the Adventist approach to theology is sometimes, because mm. nobody in the literary yeah. world or I think in the ancient world, would take a metaphor and attempt to analyse its specific details and match them up piece for piece, yeah. right? Um, if, <clears throat> if you say, for example, um, no, I don't know, pick a metaphor. He was. I, I met a guy today and he was a... Oh, no, we better keep this clean. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I was going to say... He was a real donkey. He was a real donkey. I met someone today and he was a real donkey. Yeah. So, you know, okay, so what, yeah. what part of He cut me off his, in the traffic. What part of his behaviour, Cam, was the tail? Uh, what what yeah, part yeah. of his behaviour within the traffic would you say was the tail? Which part was the long ears? Um, yeah, did he have long ears? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, was his hair yeah. grey and coarse? And Yeah. What, in what way does the greyness of the donkey lend extra nuance to your description of this person in the traffic being such an animal? So, yeah. he, we're yeah. making fun of it, but I think the, the, the point is very much that in, in every other context, you take the main point of the metaphor, the truth that it is there to express, you don't mm. focus on the details that obviously don't apply over. So why would you do it in theology? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I feel a bit as if the author of Hebrews is 
kind of is is playing with metaphor as metaphor the, the, and, yeah. and and parts parts where we feel almost uncomfortable exactly. sort of saying oh is is there a connection it feels a slightly weak well okay if you're going to analyze it at the grayness of the donkey and the longness of the years it is it's a little bit of a weak connection but that whole thing that all the problems that we're having with hebrews are essentially yeah. arguably due to our adventism we keep trying to make the hebrew metaphors consistent and 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 yeah. and accurate and transferable in all of their details and the more we read hebrews in this context the more i'm convinced that that's not the purpose of him referring yeah. mm-hmm. to melchizedek and all of the other old testament yeah. references they're not supposed yeah. it's not supposed to be a consistent scientific system it'd be a bit mad to say oh hang on christ can't be a priest because he didn't wear a robe with two the high priest because he didn't wear a robe with two jewels on each shoulder that were used to consult Oh, I don't know. Okay. I'm pretty sure I've got a picture of him wearing that somewhere. <laughs> well, well, there's no record of him wearing it, you know. Or oh, um, and he didn't have all the ephod with the different and the different layers of clothes mm. that were specified out of different fabrics and patterns mm. and all the rest of it. Oh, so he can't have been a priest. Um, yeah, that would be silly. Um, when it comes to sanctuary, I think as a as a denomination, we have been tempted to indulge ourselves at at discussions at. at comparable levels of, of specificity that that may not be helpful so uh, what i will say to our listeners is that um as much as possible uh, all of us grub adventists but we are going to try and read through the book as the book speaks for itself uh without mm. without obvious you know reference to the adventist tradition um and because that's the the what we've done so far in the book um so uh let them not be disappointed um, at at sort of our failure to to go over familiar material. Um, our, our hunt is going to be for the unfamiliar stuff because that's that's more interesting. And and just mm. to see what this book seems to speak as it's read in in a sequence, which again is not something that I remember that our, our own religious tradition doing very much with. We, we I, have I, 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 isolated I, passages from the book. This that we is like, the but, first time but, I've ever read Hebrews in its entirety. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, uh, probably me too. I think, and um, I am starting to get into the sort of mode of writing a bit more now, and I'm a bit more comfortable with the author's, you know, techniques that they use mm. to establish their points. And I'm getting a much better sense of this argument that's developing, and it, it's done very expertly, very seamlessly. So he's he's sort of moved from Moses into the priesthood, and then he's just slipped in the the sacrifice. And in the next mm. chapter, he starts talking about a better covenant, and you, you're really hitting, hitting the, the poor <laughs> Jewish audience hard at that point because the covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, has got to be like one of the, <clears throat> the most precious things for them. And but that gets yep. its go too. So um, we've got lots of fun stuff ahead of us. We what say we we leave it there, and um, and and uh, you, our dear listener, will have to join us again next week as we dive into the next chapter. Lovely.